Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, April 10th. It was a busy week one of the 2023 clay court season. And on today's show, I want to recap everything that happened at our five tour level events last week. Now, you never want to rush to too hot of a take following just one week of play on the dirt. Certainly, we have yet to see many of the top ATP players begin their clay court seasons. Nevertheless, there were a couple of players who had massive week ones on the dirt who needed them most on the WTA side of things. And certainly just looking at the draw at a superficial level, you had so many of the top women's players in the world competing last week in Charleston. While that event was on the green clay to see Anjabur capture the title, play some of her best tennis once again. Again, that's a significant development that I want to discuss on today's show as certainly it will impact the results we see over the course of the next few months. Similarly, you saw some continuing trends, right? The continued stellar play of people like Belinda Bencic, like Jessica Pagula. There's a lot of meat on the bone as it relates to storylines coming out of Charleston. And so I want to cover them all here today. Of course, you all know my affinity for college tennis to see Peyton Stearns crack the top 100, reach her first tour-level final in Bogota. Obviously, I spent all of Monday today binging all of the past five days of pro results. The reason I had to do that, of course, is we had a weekend jam-packed with college tennis action here at Crack Rackets, and I appreciate all of you who took the time to tune in to our broadcast on ESPN, ACC Network, SEC Network Plus, highlighting some of the best college tennis in the country, but yeah, there was a lot of good pro action for me to catch up on here on Monday, and it was an absolute pleasure to watch Peyton Stearns go to work. Yes, she fell short, and Tatiana Maria repeated as Bogota champion, but I want to talk about why I think Stearns will continue to ascend the WTA rankings, talk about the history she made in her quick rise to the WTA Top 100. Talk about everything that happened on the WTA Tour last week. And then, of course, you look on the men's side of things. While we didn't have every top player in the world, we certainly had plenty of them in action in our events in Estoril, in Houston, in Marrakesh. And as important as Anjabur was uh, title run was in Charleston. I think some scholars would argue that Kasparud's run was equally important. Of course, Rude is the defending Roland Garros finalist, had really struggled and was open about his struggles in the media through his first third of the season, but he writes the ship winning title number 10 in Estoril over the course of the past weekend. Do I think he's playing at the level we saw for the majority of 2022? No, I don't think he's quite there yet. He's certainly closer coming off of this week, and there were some adjustments he made technically. Now, there are certain things that are just inherently easier for him to do on clay, and we can talk about those things and remind all of you of his clay court prowess here on today's show, but heck of a week for Kasparud, heck of a week for a bunch of guys in Estero, whether it was Miamir Kasmenovic, some of the other players who made significant runs. We'll break all of that down. Of course, the story coming out of Houston was the rain. I don't think Texas has gotten that much rain in one week in years. Nevertheless, Good thing for American tennis fans that they played that event out because Francis Tiafo earns a much, no, much needed is not the right word. But it's been a while since Francis Tiafo has been in title town. Now, Francis has played really well at a lot of big events, but it's one thing to get to a quarterfinal, to get to an, a semifinal. It's another thing to end the week as the freaking champion. And again, Given we haven't started the European clay court season, we won't see Francis Tiafo in Monte Carlo either following his win in Houston. Just about everyone, by the way. Not just about everyone. But a lot of players have pulled out of Monte Carlo. That's a scheduling topic that perhaps I should discuss here on this show because it is a significant storyline and a capital J journalist would want to shed some light on that. That said, that feels like a topic for me to discuss the next time we have a guest. And for what it's worth, I'm hoping to have a guest tomorrow to preview all of this week's action at that 1,000-level event in Monte Carlo. So we'll talk about the Monte Carlo draw, everything happening there on tomorrow's mini-break podcast. Today, I want to talk about the feather in the cap of Francis Tiafo's first third of the year. That is this Esther, uh, excuse me, Houston title run for him. And if you listened 
to this mini break podcast last week, you heard me speculate that I think it's going to be a big clay court season for Francis Tiafo. Certainly to see this start in Houston feels like foreshadowing that God willing, I may have offered another correct take to all of you listeners. So we'll talk about what he did so well. Talk about a guy whose name you're going to get to know over the next three months in finalist Tomas Martin Echeverry. A big week for our guy here at Crack Rack. It's Yannick Hanfman as well. Plenty of Houston storylines. And then get down with RCB. Yeah, you know me. Roberto Carbeas Baena winning the title in Marrakesh. I think it had been five years since he had won his first title. He gets his second with a win over Alexander Mudler in the final. And it's been a good start to Mudler's season. I had the chance to cover him in the Middle East. I called his three-set thriller against Andy Murray, actually, as a matter of fact, for uh, our dear friends at, at Tennis Channel. But yeah, I mean, again, spend more time probably talking Houston, Estoril, Charleston than I will Bogota and Marrakesh. Nevertheless, a jam-packed week one. We're going to cover it all, get you all up to speed here on today's show. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out, week in, week out here on this podcast is because of the support we get from all of you. We're immensely grateful that so many of you turn to us for your updates on everything happening across levels in the tennis world. And if you've missed any of our coverage, catch up on all of our content on our website, crackrackets.com. Like, rate, subscribe, review to this podcast, The Great Shot Podcast, Cracked interviews podcast, our Breakpoint show as well to ensure you don't miss any of our content. A shout out as always to super producer Daniel Westoff who makes everything possible. A shout out of course as well to our supporting sponsors here at the Mini Break Podcast, our dear friends at Tennis Point who make it a point to provide the best equipment to tennis players across the globe at the lowest prices. And you're never going to play your best tennis if you don't feel good, if you don't look good. You're not going to play good. It's just a fact of life. The good news is with Tennis Point, they've got you covered. You need a new racket. You need a new strings. They've got every brand, everything you're looking for. You ready to update your clothing, whether it's new shirt, shorts, socks, shoes, you name it. They've got it. Wristbands and all the accoutrements as well. You can find it all over on their website, tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15 to let them know that we sent you there. A massive thank you to our friends at Tennis Point for their support, their continued support, I should say, of this show day in, day out, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right, let's talk about week one on the clay. Let's start in Charleston, which was certainly our densest draw of the week in terms of having top level, top ranked players in the world competing at the event. And obviously, the biggest storyline is the fact that Anjabur, who was injured to start this season, no doubt she was far from playing her best tennis throughout the course of first-round losses, uh, excuse me, a one-and-two stretch in the Sunshine Swing losses to uh, to Marketa Vandrosova, Vavara Gracheva. Now, those two players were probably two of the most dangerous, unseated players Jabur could have faced early in those Sunshine Swing draws, but, you know, you look for Anjabur coming into this Charleston event here in 2023. Perhaps most importantly, I know she was 4-4 four and four overall, but she had only played eight matches through three months of tennis. And maybe the single most significant thing to come out of this week for Anjabur, not just the fact that she won the title, but the fact that her body held up so well for her five-match run in Charleston. And look, things started out well from a draw perspective for her to be able to work her way in the into the event to face Alicia Serenko, Caroline Dalahide, two players who, you know, Dalahide's got a heavy forehand. Yeah, it can be a weapon, but Jabur's drop shots, her ability to find the outer thirds, it was always going to be a recipe, not for disaster, but a tough matchup for Dalahide, who needs rhythm to capitalize against opponents. And then Serenko just didn't really have a weapon to hurt Jabur with early on, particularly on these slower moving green clay courts. And, you know, again, by the time Jabur got to the quarterfinals, she was starting to play better tennis. Now she faced a wounded Kalinskaya in the quarters, but in Jabur's 5-5 five and five victory over Daria Kasakina in the semi, 6-4 and four victory over Bencic in the finals, you got to see the full arsenal of the Anjabur skill set. And most notably, there is no doubt, she hit 
the shot of the year. I know we've seen a lot of good shots this year, a lot of tweeners, a lot of dives, a lot of on-the-run magic. Her jumping tweener, body-facing the net, putting enough pace on that ball, keeping it low enough to force Bencic to not be able to do that much with the next volley, and then Jabir's able to pass her with the backhand cross. I mean, to do that on 30-40 as Bencic is serving for the set, first set up 5-4, to pull off that shot in that moment in a WTA final when you're trying to work your way back from injury, the context of the shot, the execution of the shot, the creativity of the shot, the brilliance of the follow-up, the fact that she goes on to win the match and win that first set with Bencic serving up 5-4, the context plus, all again, all of it is what makes it the shot of the year to date, and that's what Anshipur does when she's at her best. The slices, the drop shots, the short angles, the on-the-rise, down-the-line, at-will, on-a-whim, the volleys out of the air, the swinging forehand volley she uses so successfully as an approach shot on these clay courts where it's just so much harder to either A, change directions, or B, dig yourself out of corners. You just saw the variety on display, and you know, watching the Kasatkina match, yes, you know, I think all week long, Shabert did not serve particularly well. She was under 60% first serve percentage in three of her matches on the week. For what it's worth, top 50 players on the WTA Tour, their average first serve percentage, 62.1%. Again, she was below 60% for the duration of the week. And yet, you know, against Kasatkina in particular, there was just a patience that emerged when she was down late in that first set where, because I believe Kasatkina was up... I want to say, no, Kasekina wasn't up 5-4. No, it was in the 6-5 service game where Jabir was up 5-6 service game for Kasekina, where you could just tell Jabir said, okay, enough is enough. I'm putting these returns in play. I'm generating depth, even if it's down the center of the court, and I will be patient enough until you pop something up short that either A, I can play a drop shot on, B, I can take out of the rise, C, I can just get into my bag of tricks. And that ability to be patient to be disciplined in order to find her best tennis. I mean, Jabir just did not have that to start this 2023 season. And she found it once again this week in Charleston. Similarly, I mean, Belinda Bencic was striking the ball so purely this week. And I do think a continuing trend for Belinda Bencic, who, by the way, this Jabir Bencic final in Charleston was a rematch of what we saw last year. It's very rare you get sort of, you get those sorts of rematches in non-major finals in back-to-back seasons, right, or non-1,000-level finals because the draws do always differ so much year-to-year at an event that doesn't guarantee the presence of the top players. And so, you know, there's a lot of respect between the two of them. You saw the hug between them at the net. You also saw a fierceness competitively. You hate losing to your friends, right? I think inherently all of us have that gear to us. I'm trying to think, who is the friend that was—I mean— I know the answer right away. It's twofold. So I had some friends. I had a lot of friends in the tennis universe, obviously. My teammates from high school, people we competed against. I love tennis. So those were the people I tried to stay close to because we had that in common. Um, Blake Burstein, I think I was his competitive thorn in his side. He was a couple years younger than me. Ended up playing at Denison. He's my guy. Um, He, you know, almost like a little brother to me. I just owned him always. He could never beat me. I had his number. I can still beat him to this day. I don't care that he played college tennis. I still got him. Um, I mean, the answer for me, he didn't beat me, but we were always 50-50, and I think there was a little less respect. between. There was always competitive respect, but God, did we want to beat each other. It was Rishi Patel, who was my age, a year younger than me in school. But, I mean, again, that's the guy who, like, it was – DEFCON 1, right? Where it was just like, I have to beat you. I have to win this match. There's no doubt that's the human it was for me. Um, anyways, Benchich and Jabir didn't have that sort of tension, if it makes sense, in this rivalry. And yet, God, Belinda Benchich is just moving so well. Every backhand return she hit, and it helps that this clay court, it does bounce, that server, service return bounce up a little bit higher into her strike zone. So she can bunt down on it a little bit more. I mean, Benchich was lights out all week long, and 
you know, you look for Belinda Bencic. I know that was a quick change of topics off of An Jabir, but Bencic had a tough draw, right? I know she got the qualifier, Catherine Sabov, the young Canadian, in round number one, but three sets against a Shelby Rogers whose ball absolutely flies through these green uh, clay courts. ECAT, Ekaterina Alexandrova, a player I've discussed. I think it's a very similar game plan, a very similar game style. Low line drive tennis from ECAT. That's what Belinda Bencic does well. Bencic was just better at executing on the first serve than ECAT on that day and, you know, faced only two break points throughout the course of the match. But perhaps most impressively for Belinda Bencic, someone who has never been a top 25 returner on the WTA Tour, she was stroking the return so well. And, you know, in each of her matches, she created at least six point break point chances she won over 50 percent of her second serve points in every match but the match against Shelby Rogers which makes sense because Shelby does have that serve as a weapon Benchich just kept relentless pressure on Pagula on Jabur on ECAD and yet to go full circle here what made Jabur so impressive was the movement was back as well she was just a little bit more fluid in the outer third she had a little bit more time to create a little bit more depth on her defensive slices. She had a little bit more time to hold firm and kind of be unpredictable. You look like her body alignment saying she's going to go down the line heavy and she mixes in a cross-court drop shot or she's standing open stance getting ready to turn into the forehand and you think, okay, she's going cross and then all of a sudden she opens up and goes inside out. She was striking the backhand well. Again, she didn't serve particularly well, but everything else was starting to work for Anjabur. She just had a rhythm to her game. The bag of tricks was in rhythm in a way. It absolutely wasn't. Everything was so sporadic during the sunshine swing. It wasn't in Charleston for Jabur, who, again, has so many points to defend throughout the course of this clay court season. You look for Jabur, 44 and 15 now. Excuse me. She's won 69% of her matches over the last 52 weeks. She has to defend quarterfinals in Stuttgart, title in Madrid, final in Rome. Those are the next three uh, point uh, rounds of points she has to defend. All of those are significant chunks. And you look for Jabur, who with this win, retains her number four spot in the rankings. She's currently 41 points ahead of fifth place Caroline Garcia. Yeah, if she does one round worst at any of those clay court events, she's going to you know, fall behind Garcia if she, if she, you know, falls, let's say, in the quarterfinals in Madrid instead of defending her title. Right now, Coco Goff can catch her. Rabakina can catch her. Um, I'm not going to say Kasatkina can catch her, but maybe a Belinda Bencic who doesn't have a ton of clay court points to defend her. Barbara Krachikova, who was out for the majority of the clay court season. Yeah, Krachikova right now about 3,000 points behind Jabur, 2,500, excuse me. That's a lot. But with Stuttgart, Madrid, Rome, those are all 1,000-level events. There are a lot of points on the table right now. And again, the first step for Jabur was defending a final in Charleston, regaining her rhythm, playing multiple matches throughout the course of a week to see how the body holds up. It did. And that's a massive week for An Jabur, who just, again, looks like herself. I think that's the highest compliment I can pay. Uh, other than the serve, but that's low-hanging fruit, right? Because as you get your legs back under you, you get a little more spring in that serve, a little more pop on the first. Great week for Jabur. Great week for Bencic. And you look for Bencic now here to start this 2023 season. She is a very impressive 20-6 and six overall. Who are the losses to? Iga, Sabalenka, Iga again, but that was a withdrawal. Mukova, Teichman three sets in Dean Wells was rough. Alexandrova, uh, and now, obviously, again, the loss here to Jabur, 6-4. and 20-6? I mean, you look at the 20-win club right now on the WTA Tour. Pagula is the wins leader at 22. And by the way, she is just tough. She said it best in her, in her press conference. I love the way. Of all the movers, Jabur looked the most in sync. But I'll tell you what. Pagula's on ice skates in the outer third, and I mean that in the in the most complimentary way possible. Her ability to slide into the ball, change direction out of that slide, hit while she's sliding, and that's so essential because if you're not, you know, if you're sliding out of the shot, that's another half second of time you lose in recovering back to the center. Pagula slides into her shot, allowing her to recover that much more quickly. I mean, the depth she generates on these clay courts is just so difficult to deal with. She does a great job of keeping the ball in front of her, which, again, from a movement perspective is so important because it is so difficult to change direction on these courts. 
22 wins for Pagula. She's your wins leader. Rabakina's got 21. Sabalenka and Benchich have 20. That's your 20-win club. And right now, Belinda Benchich, 11th in the live rankings, 5th in the WTA points race. And it's still way too early to start thinking year-end finals. But you look for Belinda Benchich, she's 6th in overall ELO rating. She's now clay court-specific ELO rating, 7th overall, according to Tennis Abstract. That's way too high, but... Still, she's seventh in 2023 specific ELO rating as well. And that matches what I've seen with my eyes. She's been a top eight player. She's been no worse than tier two this year. I know she didn't have the greatest sunshine swing, but everywhere else she's been exceptional. And she's just moving in a way I've never seen her move before. The making contact with the ball has never been an issue. Uh, Big week for Jessica Pagula. Just some other brief headlines. We'll rapid fire through them. Daria Kasakina. Holy crap, does she need to make that semifinal? And she does. With the semifinal, she gets to retain her ranking spot. Uh, she's currently sitting at number eight, which is her career high in the live rankings. And, you know, again, Kasakina has a ton of points to defend throughout the course of the year. But, you know, round of 16s in Stuttgart and Madrid, semifinals in Rome, semifinals at Roland Garros coming up. Right now, the gap between Kasakina at eight and uh Azarenka at 16 is about 1,300 points. Again, uh, she's everyone, people within 1,500 points of her are everyone ranked 9 through 18. With Stuttgart, Madrid, Rome, and Roland Garros, the four big events on the clay court season. Again, she has big results at two of the four. Needed this semifinal to get things rolling, gets things back on track. Again, just her ability to move the ball, spread the court, move so fluidly. Clay courts are always going to be better for her. Paula Bedosa, she's fit. She's healthy. Pagula had to empty the tank in that second set to win the match. And, you know, for Bedosa this week, good wins over Fernandez, Schneider. She's fit. She's just playing better. She's going to be in the mix in this clay court season. ECAT going to ECAT. I can't believe Madison Keys lost to Daria Kasatkina. I thought on this surface in particular, that's a, that's a tough one. But, you know, whatever. And then, look, Ferrana Kalinskaya got the huge win over Azarenka we talked about last week. You look for Kalinskaya right now. She is currently sitting. Uh, Kalinskaya, let's see, where is she in the live ranking? She is currently sitting at number 62, 11 off her career high. But 24 years old, she gets to play whatever event she wants. She is absolutely positioning herself beautifully. That's everything that happened. Championship weekend in Charleston. Again, the big things. The Benchich rise continues to look real or this is clearly Belinda Bencic in her prime. This is what it's going to look like now. Whether she can get the big event results, we'll save that debate. Uh, we'll save that repetitive debate with David Kane for the next time he's on the show. Jabur's back. JPEG's doing her thing. Good week of tennis to kick things off in Charleston. Let's move over to the men's side now, though. I know there was that WTA event in Bogota, but... Charleston, the most significant event for me, I would say the second most significant is just the fact that Casper Root got back to the winner's circle in Estoril. And you look for Casper again, title number 10 for him in his ATP Tour career. He's now back in the top 25 in both hold and break percentage in this 2023 season. It's amazing what winning will do for your numbers analytically. Now he's not top 20, uh, not top 15, excuse me, in either category. And I still don't think he played that great this week. He did get impressive victories. I thought he played really well against Sebi Baez in the quarters. A 3-0 win there. Fought off six of seven break points. I thought he was good, not great in the final against Kesmenovic, a 2-6 win. I thought Quinton Halise was excellent in the semifinals and disrupted the rhythm of Rude more than Casper playing poorly in that semifinal. And that's why it went to a 7-6 third set breaker. You know, the Sosa match in round number one, it was clear Rude was finding his rhythm on the clay courts. You look for Casper, his first serve percentage actually declined in all four of his matches. He made 71% against Sosa, 68% against Baez, 63% against Halise, and then 53% against Miamir Kasmanovic, although certainly that two-hour, ten-minute match against Halise probably had something to do with that first serve percentage for Casper Rude in the final. But look, on these clay courts, the assertiveness of his forehand— the heaviness of that shot, its ability to rip through the court, its ability to push you back from a momentum perspective as his opponent, it's just going to be a nightmare to deal with. And certainly I think for Casper, I mean his ability to take open a space away and time away from you as well, how definitive and assertive he is in hitting his cross-court forehand and 
you know, again, I, I, I've said it before. It's the mortal Rafa and how he goes about executing his game plan on the clay courts. The way he even hits the backhand, the way he accentuates when he gets under it to try to elevate that ball over the net to try to generate more depth to try and buy himself some more time. His backhand was way more effective this week than we saw it on the hard courts to start the season, and it helps that he does have a little bit more time, right, to get his hands set to really drive through that ball on the grittiness of the clay, and that's the key for me. I thought in the matches where he was having his most success, again, I just don't like how frequently he's playing the backhand slice right now. I don't think that shot is producing the sort of time the sort of pop-up shots that he can then run around and hit easy first forehands with, I just don't think it's doing that as effectively. I think it more than anything, it's resetting points and allowing his opponents to get a clean look at a ball to either really attack his forehand wing with or, again, continue to drive with depth to the backhand. And that's what Kasmanovic did so much more effectively in set number two than set number one. He just parked the bus in the Kasper Root backhand corner and, you know, again, allowed Kasper to become impatient, allowed Kasper to become more slice-heavy in his arsenal in his game plan. You know, for Quinton Halise, it was just first serve, first forehand. He was winning points on his terms. It had nothing to do with Kasper, what Casper Ruud was or wasn't doing. But then Ruud started hitting through his backhand more. He started driving through that ball down the line, and when he has more time to drive through that down the line backhand, there's no doubt it's a it's a shot he has in his arsenal. I mean, against Sebi Baez, the kick serve out wide, the court space he generated for himself, his ability to not allow Baez to just get free swings from the forehand, not allow Baez to have his feet set, and that's when Baez gets into his drop shots, his lobs, his short angles, his combination of things he can do. Excuse me, I get so excited, I lose my wording. Um, Casper was solid, and again, title number 10, man. There's not a ton of players who who hit that double-digit number throughout the course of their careers. I'm sure fewer than – it's actually a wonderful question for historians. I'll have to tweet at OptaAce. I imagine fewer than 100 ATP players have won more than 10 titles. Uh, I don't know, actually. There's probably about 15 players. No, there's probably like nine players a generation that do it. And he's one of the nine. And I don't care that they're all at 250s. And I'm not even going to get into that discourse online. I think it's stupid. You know, again, you can't say he's only made two 250s if he's also made 1,000-level final in Miami and two slam finals at Roland Garros in the U.S. Open. So it's clear his tennis translates to the biggest events as well. We saw that throughout the course of the 2022 season. Great to see Casper starting to play better tennis in Astral. Big win for him. And again, he's got points to defend, but with this win back up to number three in the live rankings, we see him in the draw uh, in Monte Carlo this week as well. And he's got a tough first rounder. He's going to take on the always tricky Botic van de Sen-Schulp, although of course on the, although the physicality of Botic on these clay courts is why, even though he hits that ball a little bit flatter, he has more time on his forehand. You can't sell him short. Plenty of challenger success at this uh, in the pros on clay. Anyways, Casper looked more like himself. He was driving through the backhand more confidently. That was the biggest difference for me in why he was able to have success this week in Estoril. And things slow down when he has time. He's just so effective in moving the ball around the court, as is Miamir Kesmenovic, who to me is going to be your litmus test gateway player throughout his career of what it means to be a top 50 ATP player because the physicality, the discipline, he can hit the ball wherever he wants it to go. doesn't generate elite power. I wouldn't say he does anything elite. I would just say he's solid at everything. Kasper, uh, Miamir Kesmenovic is just really good. And, you know, again, against Cecinato in the semifinals, he found the Cecinato backhand, did not let Marco swing freely on his forehand side. You know, again, physically, he was just on a different level than Zapata Morales or Luka Nardi. There was nothing the lefty Yuri Rodionov could really do to hurt Kesmenovic throughout the court of their course of they, their clay court battle. And... Look for Kasmanovic, who had a huge start to 2022, had a lot of points to defend. He's now made a final in Delray Beach back in February. He's made another final in Estoril. He's held his ground through the first third, which I wasn't sure he was going to be able to do. And credit to Kasmanovic, 23 years old, 33 in the rankings. You just get to set your schedule. He gets to go to Monte Carlo where, look, he's going to be the favorite against Lorenzo Musetti. Musetti, who has had a disastrous start to his 2023 season. Musetti now here to open the year, what, I believe the record is 6-8 and eight 
overall, and he lost to Mueller in three sets in Marrakesh early. It's a very winnable match for me, Amir Kesmanovic. And, you know, again, he's ju- I just don't see him leaving the top 50 for a while because his floor, match in, match out, it's high. Uh, he just doesn't make a lot of mistakes. Not exactly easy openings to be attacked. You got to do something elite. And that's why I would have loved to see him play Quinton Halise because, oh my God, is the 26-year-old balling right now. And his, you know, last year he made, I think it was what, 11, 12 different challenger quarterfinals, worked his way into the top 80 based primarily on challenger results. Well, as a top 100 this year, he player this year, he stressed himself at the ATP level and he's earned 16 wins. Now, a lot of those have come in qualifying, but he's getting to the dance and, you know, he gets good wins over Borges, RBA, gave Dominic team the business in the quarterfinals. And then he had Kasparud on the on the brink, and it reminds me a lot of Nicolas Yari in his technique. It reminds me a lot. That's really the guy I would turn. Just his service forehand, his ability to just bomb forehands. It reminds me of Kyle Edmund. That's the one to look for. Uh, it's like 2017 and 18, 19 Kyle Edmund, not current Kyle Edmund, and just that ability to find the serve, and then he loads on that forehand. I actually think his forehand technique is very Edmund-like. And then, God, when he explodes through the ball, it's just a weapon. He moves well. It's very smooth, comfortable moving forward. I enjoy Halisa's game. And with this semifinal run, Halisa up to number 66 in the live rankings. Now, he's got a ton of points to defend all year long. He made Rome Challenger semifinals, Aon Provence quarterfinals, Bordeaux Challenger final. You know, he's got all of those points to defend over the course of the next month and a half. But win one match in Monte Carlo or win one match in Rome, one match in Madrid and or a couple of matches at any of those sites and you're in the ball game. And, you know, with this start to his season, he should be able to sustain his top 100 ranking, no doubt, through the clay court season. And then, again, now you get to grass. You're playing Queens Club, Mallorca, Stuttgart instead of, you know, last year we lost in qualifying at a lot of those events. You get into the main draw of Wimbledon. You get into the main draw or qualifying of every North American hard court event. Things have lined up really well for Quinton Halise, and it makes sense. He's in the prime of his career, 26 years old, clearly playing his best tennis. He has real weapons. Look, Cecchinato, now 31 year, or turns 31 years old in September this year. You look for Cecchinato. We know clay courts are where he makes his bones, and in his career at the ATP level, Marco Cecchinato overall now um, under 500, 61 and 68. Uh, on clay courts, but you look for him overall, he's 73 and 116. So that 47% win percentage on clay courts, it dwarves his 10 and 41 record, 20% win percentage on the hard courts. Yeah, when he has time to get into that big forehand backswing, when he has time to work the angles on the on the backhand, when he can play in his drop shots because he's pushed you six feet behind the baseline, he can be a nightmare to deal with physically. But big semifinal run for Chechenato, who, you know, we've seen make a semifinal at the French Open. And for what it's worth, 83 in the rankings right now. To make the semifinals of the French Open, you got to get into the main draw. And as of right now, his old ranking will allow him to do that. Estoril was a great event, though. I mean, Baez into another quarterfinal. It was interesting to see Rude give him the business the way he did. I thought Baez was going to win that match. It was the heavy topspin. That ball just got on the shoulder of Sebi Baez too quickly. And I suppose Casper Rude is one of the guys uniquely suited to do that to Baez on clay courts with just the heavy topspin that he plays. I thought Davidovich Fokina was in for a big week. That was a good win from Chechenato 5-6. and six. That's a match, though, I thought Foki's got to have. Big weeks for Zapata Morales and Dominic Team as well. And again, I thought it had more to do with Quentin Halise and how well he was playing that he gave Dominic Team a 1-4 loss in that quarter than anything Team did wrong. I said it last week. I'll say it again. I think Team is finally starting to play much better tennis. Obviously, the big news, he and his coach, Nicholas Masu, parting ways. Masu was really the guy who got Team over that Grand Slam hump, and it stuck with him throughout all the injuries over the past few years. But... Uh, again, sounds like no hard feelings. He's just deciding to go a different direction. You can understand why. Team's at a different point of his career. Maybe he needs just a little different voice to help him through things. A really fun week, though. Again, in Estoril, Kasparud emerging as your champion. Let's move next to Houston. 
And we're going to rapid fire through the rest of these takes and the rest of these events. Simply put, there was a lot of rain in Houston, a lot of rain in Marrakesh, a lot of rain in Bogota. It just threw everything off. Didn't throw off Francis Tiafo into the winner's circle in Houston. Tiafo 6-6 six and six in the final over Tomas Martin Echeverri. Now he served for the matchup 5-4, played a very, very shaky game. No denying it, but... You look for Francis Tiafo. it's his first title since winning uh, back in Delray Beach in 2018. It's just his second ATP title of his career. And while he's won a couple of challengers since winning Delray Beach, he's made a couple of finals in Vienna, in Estoril twice, in Tokyo. Again, this is sort of that, dare I say, feather in the cap for Francis Tiafo, where you look at his first third of the season. Now, Francis Tiafo's 19-5. and five. Overall on the year, that 19 and five number, he's tied for fifth amongst top 10 play, uh, top 50 players, excuse me, in total wins this season. Medvedev's got 29, Sinner and Noriev 21, Fritz has 20, Tiafo's got 19, and it's not like he's 19 and 10, right? And has been playing 12 different events this year. He's 19 and five. He's won 79 percent of his uh, matches to start the season. He is one of the 10 players right now who ranks uh, top 25 in hold and break percentage. In fact, he's one of the seven guys who ranks top 20 in both hold and break percentage. And just physically on these clay courts, he moves on it like it's a hard court, like it doesn't matter. Uh, He's so good at changing direction. His improvisational skills are so exceptional. That little on-the-rise flick of the wrist, backhand down the line passing shot he hit against Echeverry in the final in the first set, it's a joke. It's just like the creativity, the physicality, the fact that he has a little bit more time to get under his forehand, and then the heaviness of that forehand, the drive he can produce on his backhand, the drop shots, the angles, the willingness to move forward when the opportunity presents itself, and his ability to just put that first volley in play, which, of course, is that much more valuable on a clay court when it's hard to move in and out of your corners. I'm telling you, I know you look at the career record for Francis Tiafu, who now, I believe, has slowly but surely, and you got to keep in mind, he started his ATP career when he was like 17 years old. But Francis now, for the first time in his career, is over 500. And shout out to the, I, if any of you listeners like that stat, feel free to tweet it out because I think it's fascinating. With his results now in 2023, Francis Tiafo 156 and 149 in his career at the ATP level. He's finally over 500. Took him 300 matches to do it, but he's finally over 500. 118 and 106 in his career on hard courts. He's 25 and 30 on clay. Now he has made three different finals: twice in Estoril, now once in Houston. I'm telling you, this is the year. The discipline now match, matches the skill set. I think Francis is going to have a massive clay court uh, season. And I know, you know, playing, I think Tomas Martin Echeverri is a top 50 player on clay courts. The physical, I think it's Casper Ruud light from Tomas Martin Echeverri. And God, it's fun to watch him explode through forehands. To see him down match point five six in the breaker, hit the first serve, an inside out down the line, uh, inside out, inside in forehand combination to fight off that match point. That boldness, breathtaking from Tomas Martin Echeverri. Just doesn't do a lot wrong. Uh, on these uh, in his matches, doesn't have a discernible weakness to attack, doesn't have a definitive weapon either. But look for Tiafo, he beat Echeverry, Heiss Brower, Jason Kubler, and Steve Johnson. That's not a Monte Carlo draw. It's not a Rome draw. It's not a Roland Garros draw. But I'm just telling you, it was the ease with which Francis did it. Didn't drop a set. And this take was brewing in me even before I saw Houston. It's just the level I see Francis right now. I think it's going to translate on the clay courts this year. Keep an eye out on Francis Tiafo. Wins his second title of his career with the win up to a new career high. Number 11 in the live rankings. He's 10th in the points race. Again, way too early to start thinking about those sorts of things. But Francis Tiafo is playing like a top 10 player in the world right now. He's 11th in overall ELO rating. You look for him 2023 specific results. He's up to 9th. I don't know how else to say it. Like, we all have eyes. It's just, it's all clicked. For Francis, for Tommy, for Taylor. These were the princes that Colette Lewis promised, and we're getting them. And again, it's just how casual. Like, there was no celebration amongst my American tennis cohort. Like, the intelligentsia didn't freak out about this Francis Tiafa win because it was so expected. 
And that's the highest compliment I can offer the progress we've seen from Francis. He won a 250 as he should. Top seed gets the job done in Houston. Again, I'm in on Tomas Martin Echeverri, who with this run in Houston, he is currently up to a new career high, number 59 in the live rankings. Echeverri, you look at the points race, he's 23. He's been a top 25 player this year. Again, just rock solid everywhere. Turns 24 years old in July. He ain't going anywhere. Tomas Martin Echeverri to start his 2023 season, 14-9 overall. Finals in Santiago, finals in Houston, quarterfinal in Buenos Aires as well. To hell of a start to the 23-year-old season. Shout out to my guy, Yana Kaufman. I mean, it's just so... I love... His kick serves my favorite on the tour. I love his backhand, the drop shots, to serve and volley on clay courts the way he does, the on-the-run magic he's capable of coming up with. You look for Hanfman by making the semifinals. He is back up to number 110 in the live rankings. He's hovered between 92, his career high, and like 125 for four years now. He's made a couple of... How many... I'm curious. That's actually a good question, Alex, because... A good question, Alex. I didn't even say it out loud. How many semifinals has Hanfim made in his career now at the ATP Tour level? I would venture to say six. And according to Tennis Abstract, in his career at the ATP Tour level, Hanfman's made five tour-level quarterfinals, all of them on clay, four of them coming in this COVID era since August 2020. Last year, it was Kitzbühel. This year, it's Houston. The year before, it was Bostad. 2020, Kitzbühel. He made Stad in 2017. 32, uh, 31 years old. Uh, I mean, he's still grinding out there. Still has the weapons. Still has the physicality. Moves so well for his size. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think Yana Kaufman was the most underrated player in uh, and sneakily outside of Stevie Johnson, maybe the most valuable player in. Well, he was only part of one of the four peats, but he did clinch both the national indoors and NCAA championships his freshman year. And for him to beat Justin Shane as a freshman, Shane was the junior in that match against UVA in the finals in 2012. I know Uruguay was cramping against Roberto Quiroz. I think Julian Uruguay was going to beat Quiroz on that day. Anyways, we're not going to do a USC history lesson. Hoffman's the guy um, and one of the nicer guys you'll meet as well. And so really happy to see him make another semifinal. Hopefully he can get back inside that top 100. 110, he's right around the cutoff line for getting into that role on Garros main draw. And I'm telling you, three out of five sets, I wouldn't want no part of just the variety and the physicality Hoffman brings on the red clay courts. But that's your action in Houston. Speaking of college tennis, let's move next to Bogota. How about Peyton Stearns becomes the fastest player with college tennis ties to go from leaving her college tennis team, which she did after winning the NCAA championships in May of 2022, fastest player to leave college and crack the top 100 since Lisa Raymond back in the early 90s. You look at what Peyton Stearns has done over the course of these last 52 weeks. I realize Tatiana Maria was the champion, but we know Peyton Stearns here at Cracked Rackets. We've been fortunate enough to have her on the Cracked Interviews podcast many a times. And you look for Stearns. She's played 78 pro matches since leaving college in May. So she played probably 40 matches from January to May for the University of Texas. She's subsequently played 78 matches. She's played 118 matches at least over the course of the past year, or at least 100. And she's 57 and 21. In her pro, uh, in the pro matches that she's played, I mean, you just listen to her start of 2023. She's 24 and six. She went finals 25k in, in Naples to start the year. Lost to former NCAA champion Emma Navarro, who, by the way, her class uh, quarterfinals Vero Beach loses to NCAA champion Emma Navarro. 25k Orlando wins the title. 60k Rome wins the title. Quarterfinals in Austin, first quarterfinal at the WTA level of her career. Wins a match at Indian Wells before playing a really fun one. Three sets against BB Andrescu. You know, wins a qualifying match in Miami. Now in her very first tour-level clay court event, you know, only had to face one seed in Camila Rakimova, but beats a former French Open semifinalist in Tamara Zadanzik, who, by the way, is also a former Bogota champion. Beats her in three sets, then beats Rakimova in three sets before getting knocked out by Tatiana Maria in three sets. And you could see the the accumulation of those six hours of tennis. Stearns was wearing them down the third set in that final against Maria. But, God, her serve, her forehand, just her ability that 
her center of gravity, how balanced she is on these clay courts. Even when sometimes she, you know, the contact points were so off because she wasn't accustomed to the uh, to the bounce. Her body was there to hit the shot. God, her forehand is just a monstrosity. And the heaviness of it on clay courts, I would want no part of dealing with it. I mean, Tatiana Maria was in her bag of tricks. She was. Thro- I, I think Tatiana Maria probably hit 80% forehand slices throughout the course of this match. Just wanted to give Peyton Stearns no kind of rhythm, wanted to make the match grimy, dirty, physical, uncomfortable. And Stearns was ready for the challenge. Now, credit to Maria, who gets over the finish line, who does defend her title in Bogota, but... Again, fastest since Lisa Raymond, first player to go from winning the top, uh, winning the NCAA tournament to the top 100 since Nicole Gibbs did it back in 2013-2014. Stearns is top 100. Shelton is top 100. One year ago today, they were both competing and getting ready for their conference championships in college. Watch college tennis. Play college tennis. It's producing the best of the best. It was a really fun event in Bogota. And then in Marrakesh, shout out to Roberto Cabellas Baena. Spent a lot of time with him in the elevator in Phoenix. And by that, I mean he and I were always on the same schedule because he played early. We always had to get to the site early. So we both were in the training uh, the training room, the workout room at the same time in the mornings. And just, again, we it was always the same smile, same little couple sentences. Good luck today. Thanks, man. Ba 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 it's great to see him win another title. I mean, again, physically, the guy is just in for the fight. And God, was it It was a fun, creative match. It was just too, it was a war between he and Dan Evans in the semifinal. You know, good wins for him over Greek Spur as well in the quarterfinals. Good win uh, for him in round number one as well over the always tricky to play big serving Maxime Cressy. He's just a tough out, man. Carbeas Baena, 29 years old now, 49 in the rankings. He's certainly one of the 50 best clay court players in the world. And, you know, again, you look for him now uh, after playing a bunch of different challengers in the middle of last season to build his ranking back up into the top 100. It was a disappointing South American clay court stretch for him. That's why it's so encouraging to see him start things off with this title in Marrakesh. Again, I just I would want no part of that battle, and you could see him slowly but surely. You know, Alexander Muller came out hot. Was it was aggressive? Was taking forehands on the rise? Was pushing forward, coming to the net, testing the passing shots of Carbeas Baena. He just was less willing to do so as the match progressed because slowly but surely, Carbeas Baena makes you less confident in everything you're doing because you know the ball is coming back and you don't want to attack him unless you're 100% sure you're going to get away with it because if you don't attack him properly, he's going to make you pay for it. And so, again, I, I like the game of Mueller. I really like the depth he's able to generate on his backhand. I like his hands, how willing he is to move forward. The 25-year-old up to a new career high, number 96 in the world as he reaches his first career tour-level final but yeah, the story's RCB, and just again, he's going to beat someone significant. I suppose he already did over the course of the past weekend, but he's going to beat someone in a more significant event on this during this clay court season, and it's not going to surprise everyone, uh, anyone because we know what Roberto Carbeas Baena is capable of doing on this surface. That said, those are my plethora of thoughts from my plethora of thoughts I should say from a busy first week on clay now I'm well aware Monte Carlo action already underway I was shocked when I woke up on Sunday and I was like I looked to see what tennis was happening in the world and I was like oh my god the main draw starts today they've lengthened these 1000 level events we will cover everything Monte Carlo we will get you set for all of that action starting tomorrow on this show hopefully I will have a guest to discuss the draw project the draw do all of those things uh, with as well but uh, certainly again busy week in the tennis world continues we'll cover it all here on crack rackets at crack rackets whether it be on this show on the great shot podcast correct interviews podcast you can find it all on our website a shout out as always to our super producer Daniel Westoff for the <laughs> of an any job he does day in day out making all of our content possible a massive shout out as well to our dear friends at tennis point Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. And last but certainly not least, I don't imagine he will hear this, but perhaps some – I mean, there are probably a bunch of Patrick Adams out there, so you probably don't know my Patrick Adams. But Patrick Adams, doubles partner, my senior year of high school, one of my closest friends in the world. It was just, I suppose, a little bit of a backstory. I try not to do birthday shout-outs here on this show, but just a little bit of a backstory. We moved as a family, not not like 
countries or states even. We just moved like 10 minutes closer to my high school. We moved a little bit closer to the hospital so that when my mom got calls late at night, she didn't have to drive at 3 a.m., 25 minutes. She could drive 15 or 12 minutes at that hour and a little easier for my dad to commute downtown to the Rensen. Anyways, there's a little family history on what's going on in the Gruskins. And um, Ask my dad about when we lived at the Claymore, if any of you ever meet him. Say, what was your commute like coming home from the Claymore? Because if you want to get a smile on my dad's face, he'll be like, oh, eight minutes took me eight minutes to get home. And we were like, I know, we see you for dinner now. That's new. Um, Anyways, that story aside, when we were going into my junior year of high school, which is a very formative time, right? When you're a junior in high school, you're now old enough to drive. And anyways, we moved a lot closer to my high school and we moved across the, not directly across the neighborhood street, but across the larger street in the area, you know, two minutes away was this kid named Patrick Adams, who was in my grade, was on the tennis team. We were friendly, but I wouldn't call us the closest of friends. And then we moved two minutes from him and he and I were inseparable. I remember, and maybe this is weird, whatever. I won't tell the full story, but one time I was getting ready because I knew Pat was coming over. And I was like, oh, I'm probably going to go outside with Pat. So, of course, Pat knew our garage code. He lets himself in. He's like, hi, Mr. Gruskin. And my dad's like, Pat, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, Alex and I are going somewhere, whatever. He walks up in my room. I was showering, getting ready to go. He opens the shower. He's like, Alex, uh, the door to the bathroom. He's like, Alex, are you ready? I was like, dude, what is going on? Um, anyways, Pat's the guy. And he was my doubles partner my senior year. We won states together. It's his birthday. I would not be the person I am today. The confidence, you know, Pat would take me ever. He was like, no, you're fine, Gruskin. Let's go do our thing. And I wouldn't be who I am today without Patrick, who turns 28 years old today, one of my dearest friends in the world. A happy birthday to Pat. Happy birthday to our dearest friend, Brenton Desai, as well, who didn't play tennis, but he and Pat shared a birthday. He was one of our closest friends. And again, it's a date that's just burned in my brain. So anyways, shout out, Pat. Shout out, Brenton. Shout out to everyone who listened to today's episode and was willing to withstand those last three minutes of chaos i suppose anyways i don't know like it's weird my bathroom door just didn't lock and i was i mean again i was showering i was like he's not gonna call even if he does come up whatever he'll wait for me it was just one of those it's just like oh you're just like what are you doing and anyways it's not like he stayed but it was just like that's that's pat in a nutshell pat you just you always you need a patrick adams in your life i've always said you need someone who's just in your corner who's just like let's go you're coming you don't have a choice get in the car like let's roll and we'll just get you involved and make life more enjoyable that's patrick adams for me so shout out to pat who wasn't just that to me who was he was that to so many different people in our area and that's why he deserves the shout out here for his birthday today so if any of you know that patrick adams and Maybe some of you will point him to this podcast ending, please, because I <laughs> I don't I wonder if he'll enjoy. I don't think he'll love the show. It's just Pat, whatever. Uh, so shout out Pat, shout out to all of you. With all of that said, we're, let's end the show for our super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host Alex Gruskin. You know what we say? That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.